Good morning. All right, we're going to be in 1 Timothy today, chapter 4. If you want to turn your Bibles, your Bible apps there. So we got Thanksgiving is coming. It's right around the corner. And it's a time where we get everyone together, right? Everybody around the big table, and we have a great big meal, and we talk about what we're thankful for. And then right after that, we go into debating politics, sports teams, and the quality of Hallmark Christmas movies, which that debate will never be settled at our house. But what's fascinating is in families is all the generations that are represented around one table or at one family gathering. You don't see that so much you know, out in the real world. Or, and if you go to see a certain movie or maybe a certain concert, usually they're trying to, to appeal to a certain demographic or a certain generation, but not in the family. In the family, we're all together. And in spite of all our differences that we have, and that's usually, who's experienced that? That's usually when we really find out our differences, when we start talking about those things. Generations have a lot of differences of opinions on things. And where else we find this is in the church. All you have to do is look around our congregation in either service, and you're going to see the diversity that we have, even with two different worship styles. It's, It's pretty impressive to see the different generations represented in each service. So what we're going to do this morning to start off, we're going to go through the four major generations that we have right now, and I'm going to kind of give a brief explanation of them, but when I call on your generation, I want you to stand up, so that way we can see who's from what generation, and ladies, if you don't want to stand up, that's okay. (laughs) Or you can stand up for a younger generation, that's fine as well too. So we got the first generation here, the builders. Builders, if you were born before 1945, please stand up if you want to be recognized. So this is known as the greatest generation. They endured World War II. Yeah, let's give them a round of applause. (laughs) Survived the Great Depression. You can go ahead and sit down if you want. Survived the Great Depression, endured World War II, and put a man on the moon during the space race, which is very impressive. And most of this generation grew up on farms, so they were just instilled with a good work ethic from that young age that's carried on throughout their generation. They're very financially conservative generation, as a lot of you guys have some stories probably about the hoarding and saving that maybe this generation does. They're also very deeply committed to families, their professions, and their churches. And they set the example with their wisdom and their encouragement. That's really the value that they add to our society as a whole. All right, so the next generation we have here is the baby boomers, our boomers. Stand up, please. 1946 to 1964. You guys don't get an applause, and we're going to get into why. <laughs> you can go ahead and sit down. <clears throat> they grew up in the most optimistic time in the United States, the 1950s, the Leave it to Beaver family. Everything was wonderful in the United States. But then they lived through the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, and even a presidential resignation, which kind of had the country in turmoil. But what's different about them is they broke away from the traditional value system that we saw with the builders. They were all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the 60s and 70s. And they grew up watching television and listening to music. We're the first generation to really have television that they grew up on. However, despite all their flaws, those boomers, just kidding. It's my, it's my parents, so I gotta... Don't worry, we're getting to millennials, don't worry. <laughs> they are very competent an optimistic generation and really set the example for our society in that area. All right, the next generation, the Gen Xers, Generation X, 1965 to 1980. This is the disgruntled generation, <laughs> right? The disgruntled, we're going to talk about why. It's, it's your parents' fault. It's not your fault. 
So the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger really came to set the, exam- set the tone for what happened and be a metaphor for, to the American family because all the boomers were getting divorced. So they grew up in broken homes, and the divorce rate was through the roof, but also abortion was legalized during this time. So this is actually the smallest generation that we have today due to abortion and contraceptives coming in to play a very large role in our society. So this generation was also known as the latchkey kids. Mom and dad were both working, which was a kind of a new development, and plus divorce situations. So they'd come home and be kind of left to their own devices. So their friends really became their family, as we see through TV shows like Friends or the movie uh, The Breakfast Club as well. But what's interesting to them, going against what the boomer generation is, their commitment to marriage and to the family in spite of what maybe they grew up in. Pretty fascinating to see. And the last one we're going to cover today, the millennials, the dreaded, spoiled millennials. 1981 to 2001, stand up if you're a millennial. There they are. There you are. Don't be ashamed. Like, I'm a millennial. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The millennials were defined by terrorism. Oklahoma City bombing, Columbine, 9-11, this is what the millennials grew up in. The war on terrorism has been going on ever since they've been alive. And technology, this is the first generation to really have technology their entire lifetime. So the world has become smaller, information is readily available at their fingertips, and which has dramatically changed how we interact with people through social media, text messaging. It's just completely different how they interact with people. They also are a very well-educated generation with all the programs there are for people and encouraging people to go to college. They rally around causes, as we see in the news, every night. And they're more tolerant than any other generation of moral relativism. But they're also known for their compassion and their commitment to community, kind of going back and reflecting that builder generation where they're getting back to more of the community. So these are our generations that we have all represented here in our church. And now get this, even though we are all very, very different as we see from this screen, we're all equally a part of the same church that serves Jesus Christ. And I want to move on to our passage that we're dealing with today. We're going to stay mainly in 1 Timothy 12 that we heard read today. And because although we're, all these things make us different, uh, we find in Scripture where God calls us to embody one trait and above all else be an example to each other, to fellow believers, and to the world the example of Christ with everyone we come in contact with, regardless of our generation. So in this passage today, we see where Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy's a minister uh, in the church in Ephesus, and he's encouraging him to hold on to the example of Christ. Now, Paul in this passage is specifically speaking about ministers, but we're going to take this and, and talk about it as we are ministers to our own families, ministers to fellow members of our church, and also ministers to the world that we're called and told to go spread the gospel to. So Paul says here in 1 Timothy 12, he says, Let no one look down on you for your youth, but set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So the very first thing he tells us is to be an example. Be an example. And the greatest single tool that we have as Christians is living the exemplary life. That lifestyle that we portray to the rest of the world. And he's telling them that he wants them to be an excellent minister, but he says this. uh, He says... Go back to that verse real quick. Let no one look down on you. Let no one, comprehensive, look down on you for your youth. Quick note here, Timothy is thought to be in his early 30s, probably at that time. But in that Greek culture that he was in, anything younger than 40 was actually considered youth. So millennial moms there at 39 hanging on, you're still youth. Good for you. So if you're young, 
He's saying, how do we turn that around? How do we keep people from looking down on us? Or better yet, what if you're old? What if you're a different generation? What if you have something else going against you or some sort of, some sort of stereotype of your generation going against you? What he's saying to us is no matter what we have against us, we can overcome all those things by being an example to other believers in word, in conduct, in faith, and in purity. And so that's what we're going to deal with today, those five categories. If you got your Bible, you may actually see spirit in there as well. That's from earlier manuscripts. It's not found, or from newer manuscripts that isn't found in the earlier ones. So we're just going to deal with those five today in word, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So the first one, in word. In other words, he's saying our speech. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And and that's why Jesus said, by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. So in other words, just let me hear where you talk. Let me just observe you as a person having conversation, what comes out of your mouth, and I'll be able to tell you how your heart is. That's pretty powerful stuff. And later on, Jesus even tells us, he says, remember that the power of life and death is in our tongue. The power, remember that sermon I made you grab your tongue? The power of life and death is in your tongue. So he's encouraging us to speak life into one another and across the generations. It's easy to, to bash back and forth different generations, but make sure we are speaking life into each other's generation. The next thing he goes, he talks about is he says, in conduct. And Peter really nails this in 1 Peter 1.15. He says, but as he who called you to be holy is holy, so be holy in all your lifestyle." It's a holy lifestyle that we're called to. And then later on in verse 18, he says this, you were redeemed from your former lifestyle, now unto a holy lifestyle. And we see Paul, where he warns us in Titus 1.16, not to be like the hypocrites, like the unbelievers are. But he says, they profess that they know God, but in their works, they deny him. In their works, they deny him. So let me give you an example of this. A lot of times we can have the best of intentions, but if we don't put those intentions into action, it really means nothing. So a good example of this is, dads, it doesn't matter to your child if you intended to be at dinner or to be at their ball game or to be at their school play. If you're not there, the end result is it still hurts them. So actions lined up with intentions determine where you end up. I'm going to say that again. Actions lined up with intentions determine where you end up. And that's where results come from in our faith. And that's where Paul kind of goes into next. He says in love. Love is an action and love will always lead to sacrifice. We can have the best of intentions, but if it's true love, then we have to put that into action and have that self-sacrificing love. We're not talking about the, the goosebumps, the warm and fuzzy feeling love. What we're talking about here is biblical love that is self-sacrificing service in the lives of others. And we see in Scripture where it says, greater love have no one than this, that they may lay down their life for their friends. Now, I want to pause for a second and kind of go on a bit of a sidebar here, but it ties in with what we're talking about. And I heard a pastor recently talk about this, and I thought this was excellent for our millennial moms. So millennial moms, I want to put all this kind of into context for you. Because I think our culture has taken this idea and this word sacrifice, and they've replaced it with the word intentional suffering. So we've replaced the word self-sacrifice with intentional suffering. And I'm not talking about biblical suffering that we're all sometimes called to. 
In our culture today, moms have pressure from all sides to be all things to all people. And I think the reason is because women in those previous generations fought so hard for them to have a seat at the table in the workplace or to have a career, to be peers with their fellow man, that now we feel a responsibility that they have to be in the workplace to honor all those who have gone before them. And then when you look at previous generations where their kids were raised in daycare, the moms start to think, well, I, I don't really want that either. And now we feel like we're stuck, obligated to do both. But what we're telling you here is you don't have to pick one or the other. Sometimes it can be both. Now compound, compound that pressure with social media, with Pinterest, with mommy bloggers, with the Christian book industry that releases a new book almost every week on being a woman and how it's on you as a mom to succeed and how it's on you to work harder and on you to find a better routine and it fails to mention to put any of your trust on God and focus on what he can do in your life. So we're stuck here and it's all on you as moms. God isn't even in the equation so you better have a great career, you better climb the corporate ladder while being the best mom and the best wife that the world has ever seen. But what happens is you find out you can't sacrifice any of those things in your life. And so what you wind up being is totally exhausted and feeling like a failure in everything that you do. Does it sound familiar, millennial moms? So here's the good news. You're not perfect. You're not perfect, and God has those things covered. So don't feel pressured to follow the social norm. Pursue what God has called you to do. So maybe self-sacrificial love is giving up your career for your family, or maybe self-sacrificial love is having a career to provide for your family. Or maybe you're already doing what God has called you to do, but society is telling you you're not doing enough, which a lot of moms get stuck with that guilt of having to do more. So let me confirm in you, sometimes failing at societal standards is succeeding at the calling of God. Say that again. Sometimes failing societal standards is succeeding at the calling of God. So at a minimum, moms, just make sure you're pursuing sacrificial love and not intentional suffering that our society pressures you into. I think I beat that horse. So now we're going to go to number four, in faith. In faith. The word faith really could be translated as faithfulness or trustworthiness or loyalty or fidelity or commitment or consistency, but the overarching idea here is to be consistent. He's telling you, Timothy, be faithful, be loyal, be trustworthy, but above all things, be consistent in your example. In 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Paul says, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And the real thing that separates men in ministry from those who succeed and from those who fail is who is consistent. Who are the loyal, trustworthy, faithful, long-term people who have hung in there consistently serving Christ through all their years? That's faithfulness. It's not radical. It's not something crazy. It's just being consistent. So he's saying be consistent in your faith. And lastly, number five, he gives us impurity. Now, the Greek word here, impurity, is the, in the area of sexual chastity. And it also implies purity in the matter of the heart's intentions. So just like we said before, intentions can be great, but when it comes to matters of purity, we have to start with pure intentions because the intentions of the heart result in our outward actions. The intentions of our heart result in our outward actions. So we want to be 2 Timothy 2 people. We want to be vessels of honor. We want to be sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work that he has for us. 
And so men, now let me talk to you for a second. The biggest failures I've seen in men's lives is in, the, in his reputation, in his witness as a Christian, is in the area of sexual purity. And it starts with our heart's intentions and what we let come across our mind or come across our phone or come across our computer screen or what relationships we let become, come in between us and our marriage. That's where it starts. So Paul's saying here, Timothy, if you're going to succeed at your faith walk, at being a minister, you need to stay pure. So men and women, stay pure. So we've covered a lot in these five simple areas. So how do we apply all this to our lives? It seems simple, but when we dig into it, it's really a lot of stuff. How do we apply this to our lives? So I want you to look at this picture here. This is a picture of Alex Hanald from his new movie titled Free Solo. Has anybody seen this movie? Exactly, and I'm going to tell you why you haven't seen it. He is a free climb expert and is said to be the best at it in the world. And the only reason I know about him in the pop climbing culture is thanks to our good millennial trendy friend Tony, who's the self-appointed chair of the Let's Come Up With a Hobby We Don't Have Time For committee in our friend group. And he's now drug us all to climbing gyms and pushing us to see this movie. Uh, he's, he's our uh, good millennial trendsetter that we have. But Alex is known for being the first to free, free climb El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, which is 3,000 feet up with no rope. It's crazy, with no rope, just free climbing. Now, the real crazy thing is people say it's not when he fall, if he falls, but when he falls. And the life expectancy, as you can imagine, in free climbing isn't, that, isn't, the, isn't the longest. That's probably why he's the best at it, because he's the only one still alive at the moment. But think about that. By simply being tethered to the rock when he's ascending up it, his chances for survival could increase astronomically. And as Christians, we need to learn from this, the importance of being tethered. Because it's not if we fall in our walk, but it's when. And if we're not tethered in our discipline to God, then the results can be just as catastrophic for us. So as we look at these five areas and we start to get overwhelmed, we only really need to look to one person. To find the example of this, we need to look no further than the example of Jesus Christ throughout all Scripture. You see, Christ was tethered to the Father in his speech, in his actions, in his love that took the weight of the sin of the whole world on his shoulders, in his consistency in which he never failed, and in his purity. So these are the things we should strive for in our lives as we look to Christ to be the example. But just like any climber, no, that's not if we fall or if we fail at all these five areas that we talked about today, but it's when we do. But what's important is when we do fall, we have all the generations in our church with all their different skills and specialties and, and backgrounds to help us get back up and point us to Christ. Because when we are tethered to Christ, it's him who catches us and puts our hands back on the rock and no one else. 